Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. We don't want to approach the Bible to try to back up what we already believe. That's a surefire way to get things wrong. But we want to know what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. It might be a a confirmation of what we believe that it is right, but it also might be that we need to change. Now, if you have a question today, this is a Q&A. If you have a question today, then just write the word question out and then go ahead and add uh, your question, read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and we'll take a look at the scriptures and see if we can't find out what the Bible has to say about your question. All right, so our first question today comes from a study that we did a couple of weeks ago on the resurrection. There were a group of Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, who tried to trap Jesus on what he was saying. And the, uh, or tried to trap Jesus by giving them this outlandish uh, story about a woman that had seven husbands and whose, woman, whose wife would she be in the resurrection. And in that study, I talked about the Old Testament passages that showed us that there was a resurrection. They should have known that there was a resurrection, but they didn't. They didn't believe it. And why? And in the Saturday night study, I said that there are people today who deny that there is resurrection taught in the Old Testament, mostly because they want to defend or speak against teachings on hell. So I got a question about that, about would, uh, why would someone deliberately misquote the scriptures if they knew it well? Well, uh, I was watching a, an atheist's video not that long ago on hell, and he made the statement, he was, he was in Gehenna in Jerusalem, and he made the statement that in the Old Testament they didn't teach the scriptures. They didn't teach, that, they didn't teach in the scriptures that there was an afterlife. And he quoted a passage out of Daniel that talked about the dead not knowing anything and in the grave, they don't know you. And excuse me, it was out of Job. That in the grave, they don't know you at all. And then he went on as if that was the entirety of the teaching. And then I was reading a book by Bart Ehrman, the non-Christian New Testament scholar who made the same statement. Now, I've got to think he knows about the passages where the Bible tells us that there is an afterlife. And I just want to bring up a couple of them here for you. Uh, so let me get uh, to the right place here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, life after death. All right. Let me just get here. I want to just see if I can pull up a couple of these um, for you. Um, um, let's see. All right. All right. Yeah, let me just pull up a couple of these and, and give them to you. So I'm going to put them on the screen for you, and we'll just take a look at a couple of these. This is Job 19, 25, and 26, which he quoted. He actually, they actually misquote what the Bible says. Now, why would they do that? I want to talk about why an atheist would do that here in just a moment. But in the Old Testament, it says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after, after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I will see God. Job is the oldest book written. And the atheist that quoted in his video quoted Job that said that when men die, there's no remembrance of what had happened before. 
Remember, much of what Job says is wrong. God rebukes Job. And so when it doesn't jive with the rest of scripture, you can't quote the book of Job in that way. And so that's exactly what he was doing. Let me give you another one. This is Psalms 16, nine through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, the soul in Sheol. Sheol is the grave, and you won't leave my soul there, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me your path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. At your right hand forevermore. He's talking about eternal life, and this is in the Old Testament. So why would they misquote it? First of all, I'm not sure that the atheist that did the video on YouTube was aware of all of the passages that talk about the afterlife in the Old Testament. I can continue to go on. Let me just flash a few more of these here to you. Uh, Psalms uh, 21.4, Hosea 13.4, Isaiah 26.19, all talk about the afterlife. Daniel 7.13 and 14, uh, Daniel 12.2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. That's the afterlife in the Old Testament. So I think, first of all, the, the, quote, the guy who quoted had his video on hell that was in Gehenna and mentioned that they didn't believe in the afterlife. I think he's just quoting atheist scholars or, or non-Christian scholars who make these statements. I don't think he knows. And if he does, then he's being disingenuous. And that's a problem. As far as the scholars like Bart Ehrman who quote something, they're going to go back to these passages and they're going to break them down and they're going to say that they weren't really spoken. They're going to make a judgment call on whether or not what is said was really from God, whether it fit and jived with the, what was being said at the time. And he does a lot, the same thing to Jesus. Bart Ehrman will come and say that Jesus didn't say this because it doesn't fit, but he certainly said this because... It, it does because they would have never wrote anything like this. So they use their own system to pick and choose what's in scripture. And so when they quote the Bible, like Bart Ehrman does in his book on heaven and hell, and says in the Old Testament, they didn't believe in an afterlife, he is deliberately leaving things out. I've got to say a scholar of his character, quality, would know what the Old Testament says about the afterlife. And if he's saying that, he should have given, when he said that they don't believe in any afterlife, he should have talked about all of the passages where they do talk about an afterlife in the Old Testament. I think that they misquote the scriptures because they're picking and choosing. They're deciding what they want and don't want. They're using a different criteria to say this wasn't really what Jesus said or this wasn't really what Paul said and here's the reason and they'll give their reasons. And atheists do this a lot. They, they do not have the same respect for the scriptures that you and I have, and that makes sense, doesn't it? The Bible says that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. And I see Matthew being confirmed, with some of the things Matthew says, being confirmed in the book of Revelation. And some of the things in the book of Revelation being confirmed by what's in 1 John or what's in Daniel in the Old Testament. And so you and I compare scripture to scripture. We look to read them in context, but we look at what they say, believing that God has preserved his word throughout all generations. 
No wonder they misquote the scriptures. No, because they're picking and choosing. They think that they've got reasons, and I'm not saying that they're being deceptive per se, but they have reasons why they reject certain things where you and I go, no, we believe that it's from God and we believe that he has preserved it. And we believe that if we follow what is in the scriptures, that we will be blessed. We'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season and whatever we do will prosper. That if we are careful to do all that is written in the law, God will be blessed and God will bless us. And so when you're interacting with someone or watching some, something from an atheist video about the Bible, you've got to beware that they often misquote scripture. The irony is that Bart Ehrman has a book called Misquoting Jesus, and um, he picks and chooses and misquotes Jesus. All right, so thank you very much for that question. If you have any other questions about our studies, really any study that you've watched online or that you've watched in person and you have a question about it, feel free to ask it. I'd love to be able to take a stab at seeing if I might be able to bring some clarity to a question that you might have. And if you have any question about apologetics, about prophecy, uh, hard questions, uh, then uh, go ahead and ask them and we will take a look at them over the next few minutes. All right, so uh, we've got our first question here from Rod Sanchez. Rod, good to see you. Rod says, doesn't Ecclesiastes 1.13 prove that once we are saved, we are sealed and purchased possession by the promise of the Holy Spirit? Um, I said Ecclesiastes, <laughs> Ephesians. I'm like, where in Ecclesiastes does it say that? And um, I know the passage that you're talking about. All right, so in, e in Ephesians 1.3. So let me go ahead and get my Bible up here and we will take a look at that passage. All right, so I, I, I did finally get my new computer in, by the way, and we are setting it up and pretty soon we'll have it in. I'll just be able pretty soon to type in Ephesians 1.13 and pull it up and I won't have to go through all of this to be able to put them up on the screen for you. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth us being able to... Um, put them up on the screen to just, to, just to take a few minutes uh, and I can fill the time uh, there. So it's 1 Corinthians, I mean, it's, it's Ephesians 1, 13, and here we are. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. It says, in him also, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And uh, it's a great passage and of course, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the idea there being that in Old Testament times, they would put a seal on something. So an emperor would seal a letter. No one was to tear that letter except who it was addressed to. They would seal, it's believed that they sealed the tomb of Jesus so that it couldn't be broken without bringing the wrath of Rome down upon whoever would have opened it. So that's the idea, that God has put his seal on us that we are his when we come to Christ. Now, what you believe about that passage is gonna depend on where you stand with the once saved, always saved issue, which is what you're talking about here. Doesn't this prove that we are his possession forever by the sealing of the Holy Spirit? And there are passages in the Bible that you would read and you would go, yes, once we are saved, we are always saved. But there are other passages in the Bible that you go to and you read and you go, it looks like they're saying that you can leave your salvation. 
We're studying the book of Galatians on Wednesday night now, and a lot of them are on the book of Galatians. He says, unless you believed in vain. That's in Corinthians as well. He starts talking to them about holding fast to their faith and not letting it go, lest what they've done so far would be in vain. And it seems like they've turned from the gospel to another gospel, and anyone who teaches that gospel would be accursed. It, it, look, it looks like they could leave their salvation. Now, I stand in the middle ground here, and, and this is after a lot of years of study. It's after a lot of years of me saying, I believe you can, can lose your salvation or leave your salvation, and then saying, I, and I lean towards not being able to, and I still do, but I'm still in the middle of this because the Bible has so many different passages. And Rod, it seems like sometimes we have to make a stand. It's like, I believe this, rather than, than just teaching what the word of God says. And since I'm committed to teaching what the word of God says, I don't want to get to a passage in Galatians and say, this can't mean what it says because Ephesians over here says this. What if I have a misunderstanding? What if sealed by the Holy Spirit means that when I'm born again, God puts his stamp on me, but doesn't mean that he's sealing me into the kingdom of God? What if it means something different? So you can believe that you can leave Christ, that you can leave your salvation, that you have choice all the way up until death and you can walk away from Christ. You can believe that and still believe that you are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. So I wouldn't say it proves, looking at your, your question here, I wouldn't say it proves that um, we are saved and sealed in his purchased possession. Uh, I would say it sure sounds that way. And I would, I would lean that way. But there's going to be a lot of things in the Bible that we go, you know what? I need to have that. I need to be persuaded. I need to have that confidence that this is what it's saying. I am very hesitant to make a stand on something when there are teachings where things go one way or another, passages where things go one way or another. And the once saved, always saved is one of those issues. Now, let me also say about once saved, always saved that a person, a person that has walked away from Christ, the once saved, always saved issue doesn't matter because if they've walked away from Jesus, those who believe in once saved, always saved are going to say he walked away, therefore proving he was never with us, he was never saved. The people who believe that you can leave your salvation are gonna believe that he turned his back on Christ and walked away. And so that person is unsaved either way. And so the once saved, always saved argument doesn't mean anything. The way that you prove that you are in Christ then is to walk with him until the end. He who endures till the end will be saved. And if I walk away, then the once saved, always saved are going to say, well, he was never with us. And then by walking away, he proved it. The other guys are going to say he walked away. So this is an argument I just don't engage in because it doesn't matter. People who are away from Christ need to be preached to. They need to be shared with. They need to be prayed for. People who are with Christ, hey, Jesus said, if, 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 if I'm the good shepherd, I'll leave the 99 and go after the one. That's pretty strong. I walked away from Christ at 19, and I am so confident that God came and got me is absolutely amazing. He, the way he came and got me, I've got that in my life. And I, some of you know about the story. I'll tell the story at another time. I believe it's very, very hard to get to the place where you walk away from him. And that when you walk away from him, 
you may indeed be called back. He may go get you. And that, you know, once you raise up a child in the way they will go, and when they're old, they won't depart. That would seem, some believe that's a proverb, some believe that's a promise. If it's a promise, then those children are coming back. If it's a proverb, well, the odds are against them for staying away from Christ. The odds are for them in coming back to Christ. And I've learned over the years that the odds really mean something, that it really does. That if there's a 97 or 98% chance that a person raised in the ways of the Lord, um, will, when they're old, they won't depart. Like this is just wisdom. Hey, look, if we walk in wisdom, we're gonna walk in life. And if that's just wisdom, then raise your child in the way of the Lord. And when they're old, they won't depart. Uh, and um, so, yeah, Rod, I don't think, I think that you could not believe it and still believe Ephesians um, 1.13, all right? So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, and we have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. He says, are we all children of God, Matthew 2.10, or must we become so, John 1.12-13? Why do you suppose Jesus circumvented the fact that he was God? All right, so a couple of different questions there. Let's deal with them one at a time. I want to take a look at uh, Malachi 2.10, right? And that's uh, Malachi 2.10, correct? I hope that's the passage. Let me just see if I can find that. Malachi 2.10. I'm just going to bring this up on the screen. We'll read it on the screen. If it's the wrong passage, then I'm sorry, but it looks like it's the right one. All right, here we go. Um, it says, have we not all one Father? Have not one God created us? Has not one God created us? Why did we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So yeah, it's pretty strong there. Um, have we not all one Father? And then in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, and this is the other one that, that Psych Man quoted, it says that those who receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Two things that have to happen, receive and believe. And if you receive and believe, you become a child of God. Well, I think that these two, I, I think the first, an, the question, the answer to your first question is that in the sense that we are the children of God, we are not all his kids. There is a sense that he created everyone on the earth, everyone on the planet has been created by God, that he loves them for God so loved the world. So there is this kind of, kind of, what's the best way to put it here? You're kind of standing back from 3,000 feet and God loves the world and everybody's created by God and so they would be his children. But that would be more of a metaphor. You become a child of God by inviting him in. Now what about, about Malachi? Malachi is written to Israel. And Israel, collectively, are called the children of God. The, the, the nation of Israel is God's offspring. And there are several passages that point to that. But it never says, as far as I'm aware, and maybe we, we can you know, hash this out if someone finds it, and I'd love you to do that, but it never says in the Old Testament that each individual person is a child of God. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear. We have Galatians chapter 4, which talks about us being sons and adopted into his family. 
And then later on in that same passage, it says that there is no male and female in Christ. So he's making a statement about everyone, not just men being the sons of God. And the reason he does that is because we are heirs. It's in the same passage. It's the first, say, seven verses of Galatians chapter four. We are adopted into God's family as sons and heirs. And in God, there's no male and female, no slave or free. Doesn't matter where we stand, we're adopted as sons and we, have, we are heirs. And we cry out, it says there, Abba, Father, which is an intimate term. There's a couple of different ideas that people have about what it means. It's either an intimate term of, I'm so close to you, I'm respectful of you, or it's like a child calling out daddy. And these are the two different ways that people describe them. Either way, it's an intimate term. It's a personal term. And so we become children of God when we receive him. And that's not easy believism. I've heard people say, where does the Bible teach to, to, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior as being the way that you're saved? Well, it says receive Jesus and you'll be given the power or the right to become a child of God. And it also says that if you call out on his name, you will be saved, which means that he is your savior. So if you receive him as your Lord and savior, you will be saved. This is extremely biblical. And I think that those who try to make it not biblical have real problems. So we are, yes, we are the child, children of God. A person who doesn't know him, although created by God, has not been adopted into the family of God and is not an heir. So it may in an allegorical way talk about it, but it certainly doesn't talk about it in a way that you and I, psych man, are actually children of God. Now, your second question here was, do you suppose Jesus, why do you, you, why do you suppose Jesus circumvented the fact that he was God? Um, I think, first of all, for anybody to come out and claim I'm God, but there's all kinds of people who do that. Even today, there are people that will say I'm God. There's people who believe everyone's God or, or that people can become God. Uh, Mormons believe you can become a God. Uh, there's all kinds of people who said it in the days of Jesus. And so when you claim it, claim it, you claim it, it doesn't really mean anything. But if others claim it about you, it becomes really powerful. When you say, I saw him and I saw him transformed and I saw him in his glory like Peter did, like John did. They talked about seeing him transformed in front of their eyes. But Jesus did give us clues. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest him, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they fell back on the ground. And he, then he said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. They scrambled up and they arrested him. When he said, I am, in the Old Testament, Yahweh is I am, the existent one, the ever existent one, I am. Jesus has seven I am statements in the book of John. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Again, before Abraham was, I am. That's a statement of divinity. It's in a statement of existence before uh, he, before Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he said, and saw it. And they're like, when, when did, you're, you're not even 50 years old yet. When did Abraham rejoice to see your day? And they picked up stones to kill him. And, they, and Jesus said, for what good work do you stone me for? They said, we don't stone you for any good work, because, but you being a man, make yourself out to be God. So you never have Jesus saying, I am God, but you have him making statements like, I am the door. I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. All of these statements have fulfillment in his divinity. And there are other passages where Jesus makes the hint that it could only be God who was saying and doing the things that he would do. Why did he, I think he wanted it to be discovered. He didn't just come out of the chute saying, I am God, here I am, I'm gonna take care of everything. He didn't teach regularly I am God, but he let people see that he could calm the waves. Who is this, they said, who can calm the waves? He let them see that he could walk on the water. And in the Old Testament, there's a Psalm that says, it is Yahweh who treads on the water. And Jesus walked on the water and even gave Peter the ability to be able to walk on the water as well. All right, psych man, so I think that he didn't come out and say he was God. And I don't think he was, he was, and, and when they discovered he was the Christ, which remember, the Christ is also divine. In the Old Testament, there's many passages that talk about the divinity of the Messiah. And when Peter said, you are the Christ, he said, don't tell people. So there was a time for it to be revealed that was near the end of the ministry of Jesus. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he told him, don't go tell anybody. He wasn't keeping secrets. He wasn't like he had the secret to keep it. People talk about the secret of Jesus. It was that he was, the time wasn't yet. And he would, all of that would stop as he comes to the end of his life in the last couple of weeks of his life when he begins to allow people to follow him and praise him. Like Bartimaeus, when he was, when Jesus healed the blind man, Bartimaeus, he followed him and praised him as he was walking along with him and he allowed him to do that. So I think that's the reason. And uh, we can make a very convincing case that Jesus is God from just his own words. We can also do it from the New Testament passages and go back to the Old Testament and point out that the Messiah would be God. So we can see his divinity from all of those different directions, which is very powerful. Thank you, Psych Man, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, um, what is the flaming sword in Genesis that sways back and forth protecting the trees of life is it an angel? Is it God swaying back and forth? Or is it something else? Thank you. All right, Jari, thank you. Uh, I believe it says that God put two angels with flaming swords to guard the tree of life. I wish you would have put in the reference. We could go there and see exactly what it says. And if um, someone wants to ask the question, just put the word question down and say, here's the reference for what Jerry asked, Jari asked, or Jari, if you can find it. Um, I don't want to take time to look it up now. We'll go on and answer another question. But it doesn't say that there are swords swaying back and forth. Um, I'd love us to be able to take a look at it, and we can see exactly what it says. Um, and when, when we do that, we can talk about why God would have done that. All right? Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. It is good to see you guys. I want to thank the moderators for being here. I appreciate you guys um, being at these Q&As and our live events as we talked about the Roe versus Wade decision um, last week. You guys stepped in at, I think, 9 o'clock at night, one night, and, um, and we went ahead and talked about the news on Friday when it came out, and I appreciate you guys. So we have another question from Ashley. Ashley says, I keep seeing numbers 5, 11 through 31 is a procedure ritual in the Bible. It doesn't seem that way to me. Why might some think so? 
Well, let's go there. I don't know where not, I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long section to read, but maybe we can start reading it and get what the passage is. So I know that there are, I think I know the one you're talking about. I think this is the one where it's kind of a test of, of fidelity for a woman and her thigh would go out of joint. Is that, I think that's the one. So let me get there. Numbers five. This is a really interesting passage if it's, if it's the right one. Numbers 5, 11 through 13. And if it is this one, let me just say first of all, before, that it's really unfortunate that I think it's the NIV that uses the word, that uses the word for the procedure there, um, or the word miscarry for, for it, when that's not what's being talked about, I don't think at all. So this is number numbers 5, 11. Let me get there. Where's it at? All right. So, um... Yeah, concerning unfaithful wives. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at this. All right, and um, let me do this first. And let's go ahead and take a look at this passage. It's a really interesting passage. All right, so it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully towards him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defied her, defiled herself, and there was no witnesses against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself of this, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring an offering required to her, one-tenth of an ephoth of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is grain, a grain offering of jealousy, an offering remembering for bringing uh, iniquity to remembrance. And let me just talk about this first. So if you became enraged with jealousy and you thought that your wife was unfaithful towards you, there was a way that God would give you evidence under the law that it had happened or it didn't happen. And this was God's way of protecting the women of that day because women could be dismissed and often were. Women were mistreated, kind of like today they can be mistreated by a jealous husband as well. And so God intervened and allowed them to be able to do this. It seems strange to us, I know, but we go back into their culture and they're living in a theocracy where God is in charge. They can use the Urim and the Thummim on the priest's uh, uh, breastplate to be able to determine whether or not to do something. And that's pretty amazing. That's kind of strange. And so here is something that is going to reveal whether or not the woman was truly faithful or not. And it says, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. And the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have it in his hand, the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man has lied with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanliness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under the husband's authority, 
And if you have defiled yourself and some men other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under an oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among the people. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and they shall scrape them off into the bitter water and he shall make the woman drink of the bitter water and bring that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave it, the offering, before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering of the memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled and behaved unfaithful towards her husband, that the water will bring a curse, will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell and her thigh will rot and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy of the wife while under the husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. All right, so we read the whole thing. Strange passage, I know, but it's under the law and God is giving it this to them. Now, the word, the thigh will rot and the belly will swell. Those words, you need to go and do a word study on them. It seems that the result is not a miscarriage or a procedure in the Old Testament. That instead, it is that she is not able to have children anymore because it says there she will be, she will be able to have children if she didn't do this. And also they took adultery very seriously. God takes adultery even today very seriously. And if this woman, if you... If you committed adultery and you go before the priest and the priest says, I'm going to give this to you, but your thigh is going to rot and your belly is going to swell and we're going to know that you were unfaithful if you drink this, then if the woman's committed adultery, she's probably going to go, okay, yeah, I did. I committed adultery. And then she will have the consequences of committing adultery. There is also something else interesting here um, that it says... She has, let me just get back here again. Let's take a look at this. Um, but if the woman has defiled herself and is clean, uh, let's see, will become a curse among the people. Not The woman will become a curse among the people. Yeah, th the, the way this is worded as well reveals that they didn't always kill someone who committed adultery. Because remember, under the law, it was commanded that they would kill someone who committed adultery. But this woman becomes a curse among the people and it would seem that that doesn't mean killing her but that she is living among them with the shame. And there's another little portion there that's worded that way. So it's unfortunate, and I think it's the NIV version that uses a word in this context that is unfortunate. It's not what it means. It is under the law. It's under the theocracy. We are not living under a theocracy today. We will never be living under a theocracy, all right? Um, and that's why they bring that up in the, these days with Roe versus Wade being passed. They try to say that they found that procedure in the Bible, but they absolutely have not. That's not, what, that's not what the belly swelling and the thigh rotting means. And I think that it's kind of a, it's kind of like a thigh out of joint. And I need to go back and look. It's been a long time since I've, I've studied the passage and it takes a while for it to come back. 
Sometimes after our q and I'll go, oh yeah, I remember. It just sometimes takes a while for the wheels to start turning. But thank you for getting that question. It's a very interesting passage, and it really is misfortunate that some translators translated it in a certain way that makes people read that. But when you go back to the original language and most versions of the Bible, then they don't go there. They don't go there at all, all right? So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So we have a question from Andre. Andre, good to see you. Andre says, after eating the little book, the angel tells John he must prophesy again about many peoples, etc. Revelation 10, 11. Why the need to tell him? We know John was old, but was he retired? So, um, so you're asking why they need to tell him that he would prophesy again to many people um, if he was just going to go and do it. We know that John was old, but was he retired? Well, John, Andre, has been exiled onto the island of Patmos. He was arrested by, I believe, the emperor Domitian, put on the island of Patmos, exiled there, and from there he wrote the book of Revelation. And that he was going to prophesy again would tell him that he was going to get off of the island, that God was going to still use him, that he wasn't going to die there. So you would think you're living in exile, that you would go, I'm going to die here. But he didn't die there, and God did use him again. And so I think kind of like God would give us some revelation about ourselves and the future, um, there's a reason for that. When I was 19 years old, I received the only prophecy I've ever received, and I think it was supernatural. We, um, we were at a Saturday night service, there was, and, and I was a Pentecostal church, I was in a four-square church, and they brought in a prophet who was having people stand up and telling them about themselves. This prophet had me stand up. I had a business of my own. I started a business when I was 17 years old out of my mom's garage. Then when I got married at 21, I had four consecutive businesses after that because once I got out of my mom's garage, the first few failed. And then I finally had Auto Improvements Unlimited, which was successful, Southwest Custom Trim, which was successful, and I sold. Um, so uh, he told me, he had me stand up. I'm 19 years old. had me stand up, and he says, you're going to have, have, some, have a business. He used the term A, have a business here in Tucson and Albuquerque for a while, and then you're going to move to another city, and God's going to use you to plant a church. Now, I didn't think much about it. Quite frankly, I'm always skeptical about it. Now, could someone from the church have told him that I already had a business in my mom's garage at 19 and that he could just figure, you know what, he's going to move. He's, gonna, he's not going to go work somewhere. He's going to go and continue to do his own business because it was pretty successful out of my mom's garage. I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to pay utilities. I was just making bank every day. And then when I got married, I decided I can't work out of my mom's garage and so now I had overhead and utilities, and I ended up failing a couple of times before it was successful. But, and then it wouldn't have been taken too much for someone to tell him that Robert believes he's going to be a pastor. He wants to be a pastor. However, to get those few things right, that I was going to have a business and that I was going to go to another city and start a church, those are very distinct things. Now, a, couple, a few years into ministry, about eight years or so in, I had some traumatic things happen. We had some, some people problems, and people problems in churches are difficult. And I think God allows pastors to go through them to humble themselves. And um, 
during that time, I remember saying to God, maybe I'll just quit. You know, maybe I'll just go fire up a business again. Maybe I'll, you know, I was a, I'm, I'm an auto mechanic. I'm a, I am a certified auto mechanic for rebuilding motors. And I, um, I've had businesses putting in cruise controls, T-tops, uh, sunroofs, uh, upholstery of every kind, convertible tops. And so I was just thinking, I'm just going to go back to that. I, I'll, I'll be fine doing that. And um, the Lord reminded me of when that prophet came and what he said. And it was as if God was saying, that's why I told you. So you would know you're in the right place. This is where you're supposed to be. And no matter how hard things are, remain here and keep doing what God has called you to do. I am skeptical of prophecies and of people who give them, but this is an experience that I've had in my own life. And I can't deny that he got a couple of things right that he, that he would have to take guesses at, even if he talked to somebody about me. Even if somebody said, you know, this is going to be, this is Robert, this is what he looks like. You know, he's sitting over there or whatever. So that when he had me stand up, he was able to say those things. But what he said actually came true that was unyet seen. And so I think that God revealed it for a reason. So why did God, God tell John that he was going to prophesy to more people? Because John needed to know for whatever reason. Maybe just to encourage him that he was going to get out of that place. Um, who, who knows exactly, Andre? But God has his reasons for letting us know sometimes beforehand something that is going to happen. All right, so thank you very much. Your questions are always good. I appreciate that. Um, so we have a question from Justine. Uh, Justine says, um, do those who commit uh, suicide go to heaven? So this is a question that we get quite a bit, and I'll answer it pretty quickly, Justine. Uh, I believe that it's possible for a Christian to be so distraught I don't think they're in a right place with God, but it doesn't mean that they're not saved, that they are so depressed, they're distraught, something has happened that makes them feel bad. And so they, in their distress, take their own lives. And I believe that they will go to heaven. Now, some get really upset at me for saying things like this because they say, well, you're kind of encouraging people to kill themselves. Trust me, I'm not. Don't, if, if, if you are thinking about killing yourself, then think about the life that's been given you by God and die to Christ and live for him. Stop living your life for yourself and begin to live for him. Ultimately, suicide is a selfish act. I think that there might be circumstances that it wouldn't be selfish, but for the most part it is. A person is, has become narcissistic and has become selfish and they end up taking their own life for whatever reason. They want to pay someone back. And I've done funerals of several people that have committed suicide over the years. They are tragic and they are hard. The only funeral that's harder is the funeral of a child. But I, in almost all those cases, there was a sense of getting someone back in this suicide in almost all the ones that I did. I'm not saying that's everybody who does. I'm just saying there was. And so narcissism being just focused on self. Keith Green had a song that says, it's hard for me to see when my eyes are always on me. It's not about you. It's about Christ using you. It's about the glory that is to come. The Bible says, for I know that the sufferings of this world cannot be compared to the glories that we are going to receive. And so you may be suffering greatly. 
You may not be who you want to be doing what you want to do, but that's not why you're here. God didn't create you so that you could do things that would fulfill you. He created you so that you would live for him. And ultimately that is the true and real fulfillment in getting our eyes off of ourselves and putting our eyes on God. Now I can't judge whether someone who has killed themselves is going to heaven. And I'm always careful to say that because someone will say they had a real relationship with Christ. I know that they did. How could they do this? And I don't know. I don't know if they did or didn't, but I do believe that someone could be so distraught and in a moment of a lack of clarity, do something really stupid by taking their own lives and still go to heaven. It is not the unforgivable sin. This is people's thinking that you kill yourself and, and, and you didn't repent. And so you killed yourself and then you can't repent. So you're going to go to hell. Well, if unrepentant sin makes you go to hell when you die, then there's a lot of people who die unexpectedly, they're gonna to go to hell. I believe that we are his, we are his children. We are bought with a price. And even if I sin and then he returns at that moment, I'll still be with him. Or I sin and I die, I'll still be with him. Because we're weak, because if anybody says they don't have sin, we're lying. So I do believe that it is possible for someone to kill themselves and go to heaven. Obviously it's possible for someone to kill themselves and not go because they haven't really ever trusted Christ. Maybe they were thinking the wrong things. All right, that was supposed to be a quick answer, ended up being a little bit longer. All right, uh, but I do appreciate, um, I do appreciate you guys. So, and I appreciate your question. Uh, let's go ahead and get to another one here. If you're watching us for the very first time, we wanna welcome you. Glad to have you guys here with us. I love the community that's being built here. And you have a question really about anything, we try to connect it to our studies. We're in Galatians on Wednesday night and Luke on, Saturday, on Sunday morning, Saturday night. And if you have a question about a study that you watched or you have a question about anything, uh, then go ahead and ask that question and uh, we will answer it. All right, I'll give it an attempt anyway at answering it. All right, so we have a question from Bernadette. And Bernadette says, uh, for, joins us from YouTube. Um, question, what does the rapture mean? What is the rapture of the church? All right, Bernadette, thank you for your question. I really appreciate that. So there's a few passages in the Bible that talk about a transformation of the body, of the believer. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. The whole chapter is on resurrection, by the way. And, and near the end of it, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all gonna sleep, and by sleep he means die, but we shall be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. This is a mystery. No wonder the rapture is hard to understand. It's a mystery, and we're not all gonna die, but some of us are gonna be changed, and this mortal is gonna put on immortality, this corruptible is gonna put on incorruption. So my body's gonna be changed to where I, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So God's got to change me into a glorified body that can, can inherit the kingdom of God. It would be the same body that Jesus had. We know that we can eat because Jesus ate. We know that he could go into a room with all the doors shut and the windows locked. And so that will be like us. In another passage, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. This was at the last supper. He had told them he was leaving. They were bummed. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, 
that where I am, there you may be also. There's also a passage at the end of Luke 21, and we're getting ready to start in a couple of weeks, Luke 21. So for several weeks, we're gonna be talking about prophecy, end days events, um, eschatology. We're gonna take the chapter really slowly. We're gonna make sure that we have a thorough understanding of what the Bible is saying and what the different beliefs that are out there about the last days. But at the end of it, he says, you watch and pray. He talks about all these horrible things that are gonna happen, but you watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to stand before, you escape all these things. Let me start again. But you watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all these things will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. That escape is the rapture. And then of course, in 1 Thessalonians chapter five, four, five, it says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Somehow they thought that when someone died, they were gonna miss the kingdom of God. They weren't gonna be able to be in glory with them. They had to be alive when Jesus returned. And so he says, those of us who are alive and remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus will bring with him those who, have, who sleep. He's gonna bring their spirits, their souls with them. And then we will not precede them, but the dead in Christ will rise. They're gonna meet their souls and spirit. They're gonna be transformed. And then we're gonna be changed. And, and caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds, and we will forever be with the Lord. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. Undoubtedly, it's a rapture. And so when people say, the rapture isn't in the Bible, the word rapture isn't in the Bible, but it says we're gonna be caught up to be with the Lord. That word caught up in the Latin Vulgate is raptura, or in the Latin, it's vetura, not Vulgate, but, well, it might be Vulgate, but uh, is raptura. And that's where we get the word rapture from and could be translated, we will be raptured to him. Even if the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but we believe in the Trinity, it's clearly taught in scripture. And the, the rapture is clearly taught in the Bible. And it is the resurrection. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to be resurrected into the presence of Christ. This will happen in the very end of things. Jesus said there's a time coming that is worse than anything this world will ever see and is going to see. And this is that seven-year period where the Antichrist is revealed and which 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 4 says that there will be a falling away and the Antichrist will be revealed. It doesn't mean Jesus couldn't come back before the Antichrist is gonna be revealed. He couldn't come back before the falling away and then the Antichrist would be revealed. And then he will cause the abomination of desolation in the middle of the three and a half years. And then he will attack and persecute the, the nation of Israel throughout the rest of that time. And we could talk more about the Antichrist in 666 if someone wants to ask questions about that. But all of that we will be saved from. The Bible says in Revelation 3.10 to the faithful church, and if you are a faithful Christian, this is for you, I will preserve you from the hour that is to come, that he will take us, that he will keep us from that hour. It doesn't say I'll take you through it. It says I will keep you from it. The Bible says that we will not partake of the wrath of God. And the tribulation period, all seven years, are called the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, all of them are called the wrath of God, not just the last three and a half years, like some try to say. Now, if you believe that it's the middle of the tribulation period or the end of the tribulation period, or if you believe that it doesn't have anything to do with the tribulation period, but there's gonna come a moment where we're gonna meet him in the air, you believe in the rapture. That's why when people say, the Bible never talks about a rapture, it's like, uh, the timing is up for debate. 
but the rapture is not. The Bible clearly teaches it. And I believe solidly because Jesus said, you don't know, be ready because you don't know when I'm gonna come back. And that means I've gotta be ready now because I don't know when he's going to return. See? So I think that's very clear. If I know, if I don't know when he's gonna return, he could come back at any moment, it's gonna come happen before the rapture. I mean, before the tribulation period. Because once the tribulation period starts, now I know. I know what's gonna happen in the middle of it. I know what's gonna happen at the end. I know what's gonna happen a fifth of the way in. I mean, we've got it mapped out for us in the book of Revelation. So we know what those things are. So that is solidly, that solidly tells me that the rapture will happen before the tribulation period because we are not, we're supposed to remain ready because we don't know when he's going to return. All right, so thank you very much for that question. Gives me a, a little bit to go off on um, an area I absolutely love, and uh, that is eschatology. And I'm really excited to be in Luke 21 in a couple of weeks. All right, so we have a question from Renee, and Renee says, question, do you know a good commentary on the book of Romans? Thank you, Pastor Robert. Well, I do. Uh, and um, there are certain books of the Bible that have certain people that do commentaries on them, and the commentaries are phenomenal. The book of John has a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce. Now, he is a Calvinist. He's ref I don't know if he's Reformed. He's a Calvinist. He may be Reformed. Um, and so you've got to, you're going to read that in there. But other than that, such a good commentary. I would say anybody teaching through the book of John should be reading James Montgomery's commentary on John. The book of Romans, interestingly enough, was the pastor that, that um, James Montgomery took over for is Donald Barnhouse. And Barnhouse wrote a six series, uh, a six book series on Romans, which is so in-depth and absolutely phenomenal. And if you're gonna teach the book of Romans or you're gonna read and study the book of Romans, then Barnhouse's set is a must. Uh, I imagine you can buy it online now, that you'd be able to buy it. I know you can buy it through Logos. Logos is so expensive though. I, I gotta think you can be able to find it. And you could also order it through Christian Books um, and just get the hard copy. It's not bad to have around. I, uh, uh, let me see, I got it here. I just gotta remember where it's at. I've moved my bookshelves around here recently. They used to be behind me. So, ah, I wish I, could, I, wish I had it right off the top of my head, but it's, I mean, right, right at hand to be able to grab. Um, but it's a great series, all right? Donald Gray Barnhouse on Romans, six volume set, absolutely phenomenal. You'll love it. It's gonna teach you so much. And I would say, take your time. Read Romans first. I'll read chapter one first and then go and read it and write down some questions, read it thoroughly, get what you think it's saying, and then go back and read his commentary. And I think there'll be so many good things you'll learn from it. All right. So thank you for that question. Again, great question. Letting me talk about what commentary I like on certain books. Love it. All right. So we have a, um, a question from Itza. Itza says, Rosh Hashanah the Feast of Trumpets, the Wedding of the Messiah, and the Jewish New Year is connected to the rapture, according to many Jewish friends. Can you help me understand how? All right, so how much time do we have? A little bit. <laughs> this is a, all right, there's seven Jewish feasts a year. Four of them are in the spring, three of them are in the fall. The four in the spring 
were fulfilled and spoke of the exact things Jesus did and fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the first four literally. Passover was one of them, and he was crucified on the day they killed the lambs for Passover. And so Jesus fulfilled all four of those. Now, there are people who go to it and look at He fulfilled all four of these, and we can see them clearly. And when you do this study, it's an amazing study, and I'll, 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 I'll lay it out sometime. In fact, I want to do a hot topic on this. And so we believe that Jesus will fulfill the last three, literally. And so the next is the Feast of the Trumpet. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that at a, in a trumpet's going to sound, and we're all going to be changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. And in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 5, it says at the last trumpet, or the last trumpet is mentioned in Corinthians, and the trumpet at the sound of a trumpet in Thessalonians, and the shout of the archangel, uh, that, and the shout of the Lord, that we are all going to, to be caught up to meet him in the air. So the, um, so the idea is that Rosh Hashanah is the fulfillment. And many people will say, and Jimmy Evans is one of these, and I really like Jimmy Evans, but I don't necessarily like this point that he makes. Um, in fact, I'd love to get Jimmy Evans to come to the church sometime and just for people to really be able to experience him. I think he's great on marriage. He's great on prophecy. Um, and really the rest of the Bible as well. But he says it's a two-day feast. And so you're not going to know the day or the hour. And I, and I kind of don't like that. It's like, could Jesus fulfill it without coming on Rosh Hashanah? He fulfilled all the other ones on the day that they were. Could he fulfill it without being on Rosh Hashanah? And I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, what would happen if Jesus came back on a day that's not Rosh Hashanah? Then they would just go, oh, it seemed like it. So every September, you're going to have, because the, the Feast of Rosh Hashanah is in September. You're going to have people who are saying, Jesus is coming back soon. He's going to come back this September. Could he? Maybe. Sure. He could come back any time that he wants to. But he comes back at a time you don't expect him. And there's a lot of people that are going to be expecting him on Rosh Hashanah. So I think that makes it unlikely that it will be Rosh Hashanah. Could I be wrong? Of course I could be wrong. Who's, who's right about the time that Jesus is going to return? Every generation so far that has said that he's going to return have been wrong. Now, one of these days he's going to come back and somebody's going to be right. And so that's why. And there's other feasts. There's those three other feasts that will be fulfilled after Jesus returns. And um, we are in heaven with him. And um, like I said, I'd love to do a study on the feasts. Like I, maybe I'll do a hot topic on that. Or if I get to a Bible passage, I can do a full Bible study on it. <clears throat> it would be really good. All right. So almost done here. Thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead. I'm going to take um, Kimberly's question here. Empress Kimberly says, a uh, question, hi, pastor. Hello. Do you know the Greek or Hebrew meaning of worship in Revelation 14, 9 through, ever, through 11? Whoever worships the beast and his image. Thank you. I am concerned with my, um, my worship and not know it. I'm, I'm concerned. We, well, we may worship and not know it. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look at that passage and I want you know what I want to do it in? I want to do it in my Strong's so that I can pull up the, the passage. So this is um, Revelation. That's easy. Just go to the end. Revelation chapter 14. 
starting in verse 9. All right, so let's go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and put this up on the screen so we can take a look at it. And this is my Strong's Concordance on my phone. So we're starting at verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image. So now I'm going to click on the word worship, and we're actually going to pull up what the word is. So proskana or proskani, proskani, from 43, 43.14, that's another uh, Greek word, and probable derivative of 29.65, meaning to kiss, like a dog licks his master's hand, to fawn or to crouch to, literally or figuratively. Prostate oneself in homage, do reverence to, worship. Okay, so I think that that's gonna be pretty hard to do accidentally. I think that this kind of a thing, to, to prostate oneself, to fawn or to crouch before, actually bow down before them is going to be really hard for us to do by accident. And I think that that was your question, wasn't it, Kimberly? Um, do you know the Greek Hebrew word for worship in Revelation 14, 9 through 11? Whoever worships the beast or his image, thank you. I'm concerned we may worship and not know it. All right, well, understand that concern. I don't think you're going to be able to do that. I think you're going to know it. And um, if you're crouching before anyone, if you're giving them that kind of reverence, um, you're going to know that you're doing that. And I don't think that it will be done by accident. <clears throat> it's kind of like uh, taking the mark of the beast. You're not going to take it by accident. You're going to know you take it. And by doing that, you're going to know that you're not following after God. Because sometimes people think, I'm using a credit card and that could be the mark of the beast. Or I'm using a cryptocurrency and that may be the mark of the beast. None of these things are the mark of the beast. They may use some technology from them, but you'll know when you take it. And you'll also know when you worship his image. All right. So thank you very much, Kimberly, and everyone for joining us today on TruthQuest Podcast. It's been really good to have you here with us. I hope that you are blessed. I hope that God really touches your heart and that you are genuinely moved into a deeper relationship with him. I pray that you would walk close to Jesus knowing him, loving him, really being sold out to him, and that God would bless you by studying his word. His word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It gets down into our hearts. It works in the hearts of those who believe, does not return back void. We become like trees planted by the rivers of water. It keeps us from, from it keeps our way pure by the word of God, it says in Psalms 19. And God has preserved it from generation to generation. Let God's word speak for itself. Feed on the meat and milk of God's word that you grow by, and you will be the people that God wants you to be. In Hebrews, um, the writer of the Hebrews was upset because by now they should be teachers, but they were in need of someone teaching them again. All right? So stay close to Jesus. Read his word. Study it. Love it. Fall in love with it. Read it because you want to. Let there be a desire for him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Christ and let his word abide in you. All right, I'm signing out. God bless you guys. We have a service in a couple of hours. We're gonna be talking about an illustration that points out that we are not under the law. In fact, I've called it a game-changing illustration from Galatians chapter four. And we'll be moving into chapter five next Wednesday, Lord willing. And that shows us how to live walking in the spirit. 
how to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh so that we don't fulfill the things of the flesh. It's the, five and six in Galatians are absolutely fantastic. I look forward to getting into them. And next week, Luke 21. So I'll be in Galatians 5 and 6 on Wednesdays, Luke 21 on Sundays. Uh, what a great couple of places to be. And I'm sure that this Q&A will have a lot of questions from those passages. All right. So I'm out. We'll talk to you guys later on. Love you.